Welcome back to another show of Bitcoin for Advisors. I'm your host, Morgan Rochard, and with me I have the great, the legendary Pierre Rochard. Thank you. You're you're boosting my ego again. <laughs> right, do you want me to take it down a notch? Oh yeah. You, the assistant to the host. But, yep. There yeah, we there we go. <laughs> Well, um, we're happy to be here. Um, we know we took quite a long hiatus, but um, we're back with custody today. Self-custody, really. not um, we, we don't advocate for other people holding your keys. Well, it's certainly, it's, it's part of the landscape. And Bitcoin, the central premise of it in every regard, I think is really about maximizing the freedom of the user. And so people are free to use third parties if they want to. But um, as our friend Michael Goldstein likes to point out, that actually using a third party does not mean that you don't hold any private keys anymore, uh, but rather it transforms private keys and increases your attack surface in the form of password and two-factor authentication uh, for most of these third-party custodians. Um, so, yeah, that but... Sorry, that's we're already getting into the the weeds here. But <laughs> I mean, the point being that, um, yeah, that because, well, let's back up a second here and talk about uh, what what is being custodied, right? What is the private key and what his purpose is in the system? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's a misconception that folks have about where the Bitcoin are. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. <laughs> Where are my Bitcoin? Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not so straightforward. Um, so the what private keys are used for is, first of all, they are used to generate an address or derive an address. And an address is what you share with somebody else. And they send Bitcoin to the address. Um now, the way that you get from a private key to an address at a very high level is that you do elliptic curve multiplication, and uh, that gives you a public key, and then you encode that into an address. Um, you now, had a nice tweet about that. Can you re- remind me your tweet? It was something about, like, Bitcoin doesn't solve this specific problem because... Right. Yeah. The the discrete log problem. Now, I'm not a mathematician, so I'm not an expert in this area, but yeah. uh, this is uh, uh, an, an unsolved um, math problem, which is basically the idea that uh, even though we can do elliptic curve multiplication, it's extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to do division, mm. elliptic curve division. Okay with lots of qualifications of like specifications and all this. But anyway, um, so like so hard that you're basically uh, you you're better off or you're not better off, but you're, you're not going to be able to reverse from a public key into a private key. Yeah. Um, you can only go from a private key to a public key. Um, and then the encoding part um well, actually, so my understanding is that the new taproot addresses are um, have this encoding called BEC32M. And basically, um, they're really trying to, because the result, the public key, uh, is long and also is um, uses all sorts of numbers and letters, 
Um, whereas when you're sharing an address, you don't want to use numbers and letters that are, can easily be confused with each other, mm. like a capital I and an L and uh, things like that where, yeah. that are more like at a human level. A zero and an O. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and and then you also want it to start with a prefix that is easily recognizable. So in the case of a Bitcoin address right now, BC1. Um, and that's the encoding part is kind of refining the public key into something that might be easier for people to, to use, to communicate and to also, um, kind of have it be, uh, um, foolproof. I was was thinking error prone. I was like the opposite of foolproof. (laughs) Um, because, uh, the encoding also has what's called a checksum. So if you were to, uh, like over the phone, tell somebody what the Bitcoin address is, mm-hmm. and they got one letter wrong, it would actually not be a valid Bitcoin address. Ah, I see. Okay. So there's kind of a built-in thing there that yeah, you Yeah, I always get. wondered that, actually, because like it has, like for instance, if you're using a hardware wallet, you can check the address on your hardware wallet to make sure that it's a valid address. And I was always wondering how it knew, or like if I were to change a couple of things, would it be that different? Or like, is there a difference between... Like, can you really have one letter difference and then the Bitcoin goes to a completely different place? Or Because, like, banking addresses are actually like that, right? If you have a routing, (laughs) like, you can change one bank account number and then the next thing you know, you know, Cindy down the block has all your money. Yeah, it's astoundingly better, like, orders of magnitude (laughs) better than the fiat system. Uh, Bitcoin is just in every regard. It's amazing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and the the hardware wallet um, address verification... Um, my understanding is that really what it's going for is to prevent, um, malware on your computer from replacing an address. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So that, uh, because the hardware wallet is physically separated that then you can visually check, but you're right that you don't need to check the whole address Mm -hmm. unless you're on levels (laughs) of paranoia of, you know. I guess I am on levels of paranoia because I actually do check the whole address, but I thought I was supposed to do that. I, you could get away with checking just the first five or the last five. Okay. (laughs) Well, not the first five because it has the prefix in it, but after the prefix. Okay. It's like the first 10. Yeah. I think, well, that might be the whole address. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what you're saying is that I'm paranoid, but I'm still doing it right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, anytime that that you're handling money in a system where there's no customer support, (laughs) uh, the onus is on you to kind of uh, really be super, super diligent and thorough. Well, I think, though, it kind of goes back to the fact that, like, since we do all have fiat brain, adjusting to this is actually quite hard. Like, I find myself being so much more careful with, like, $5 worth of Bitcoin than I am with, like, you know, $1,500 worth of fiat. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, there, there's there's no way to reverse it after it goes out. So, gotta make sure you get it right. Um, but, yeah, sorry, I interrupted your train of thought. No, not at all. So that was kind of the address encoding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you give that address to somebody else, um, and they're going to send Bitcoin to it, what their wallet does is it takes that address and it puts it inside of a smart contract. Now, I don't use that word because this is particularly complicated. It's not really that complicated, but um, 
What I mean by smart contract is that it's self-executing within the Bitcoin system. Okay. So there's no lawyer or judge or jury or prosecutor. Those are for dumb contracts. For smart contracts, it's just about Bitcoin nodes um, uh, executing the the script because it's actually, it's like a little program. Mm -hmm. And what the script says is that um, whoever can provide a digital signature using the same private key that created this address can unlock these Bitcoin in the future. Um, and the script is the the spending conditions for those Bitcoin of going forward, um, how how can they be spent? Um, so the wallet software puts the address inside of that script and, and then um, broadcasts, well, and, and then that script is inside of an output. Mm-hmm. And the output is a combination of the quantity of Bitcoin expressed as Satoshi's. One Bitcoin equals 100 million Satoshi's. Um, and that output then can be one of several outputs in a Bitcoin transaction. Um, now, on the other end of the Bitcoin transaction, th- there's inputs. And those inputs are unlocking pre-existing outputs. Um, so every Bitcoin transaction is a set of inputs that are unlocking Bitcoin and then a new set of outputs that are locking Bitcoin back up. Um, so what you're saying is that when, when you're sending that, like, those are the inputs that are unlocking and when you're receiving, those are the input, those are the outputs that are locking. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, and so, um, usually the wallet software hides this from the end user because <laughs> it's like very granular detail. Um, but it can be useful to, to know this uh, in a number of different contexts. Um, but basically the idea is that uh, the, um, the input has a digital signature as part of it. Now, lots of implementation details here, lots of hand-waving, but the input provides a digital signature um, that is fulfilling the conditions in the output. Okay. Um, now, the digital signature is actually created using the private key that created the address that's being unlocked. Um, and so that's really why the private key is so important is because the private key is how you control the Bitcoin. Yeah. But... The Bitcoin themselves, they exist, first of all, in in Bitcoin transactions as outputs. Um, and then in if you think about um, kind of zooming out from transactions, uh, you've got blocks. Mm-hmm. And what those blocks of transactions are doing is that they are updating the ledger. And really, when we talk about the Bitcoin ledger... Um, what specific part of the system we're thinking about is the UTXO set. So UTXO stands for unspent transaction output. Mm -hmm. And so this is what are all of the outputs in the Bitcoin system at any given time? 
Um, and that gives us basically what's the total balance, what are the, all the balances of all the different users of the system? I see. Okay. So, all right. So, I mean, I, I would imagine that most people listening to this probably go to a place like Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini and they go and buy some Bitcoin. So to start with, right. And then I know there's obviously a different way of getting Bitcoin as a block reward when through mining. Um, and that would be like a different way, I guess, of generating a new private key. But let's talk about, I guess, like end to end, right. You go and you buy Bitcoin on, let's say Coinbase, right. From there, right. Coinbase actually has the private keys there until you go to withdraw. Correct. So at some point, somebody deposited Bitcoin at Coinbase. Yep. For you to buy it, for you to buy it from them. Yeah. Brian Armstrong does not yet have the ability to uh, conjure up. uh, (laughs) It's not like the fiat system where you can just randomly create fiat money whenever you want. Exactly. So somebody else moved their Bitcoin from their private key to an address over at over at Coinbase, and they went and sold it. And then somebody like me would then go and buy it from there. And then when we move it off, that's when we would generate a new private key. Well, um, there's a private key that would actually get generated in the meantime to create that transaction between me and that other person? Or does Coinbase actually do that behind the scenes? So in order for you to withdraw Bitcoin from Coinbase, you have to provide an address. Mm -hmm. In order to have an address, you have to have a private key. Yeah. So at some point you had to generate a private key basically in order to move my coins off. And then there's a number of ways to do that, right? You can run a node and generate a private key. And well, that's actually kind of an accident of history that the Bitcoin, the, like the, um, the implementation that Satoshi gave us of Bitcoin, which is now called Bitcoin core, Mm -hmm. um, happens to have a wallet attached to the node software oh i see okay so it's not actually the node that's creating the the um private key it's actually the wallet software inside the node it's i wouldn't even say it's inside the node okay it it's on top of the node. it operates side by side with the node it's on top of the node. okay sorry it sits on top of it yeah because it's a it's a layer on top of it really and um the in fact like you can now you can run a Bitcoin node without running that wallet software. Like there's a command line argument that you pass like, and you can even compile the software without any of the wallet parts. Um, because, and, and you can't run the wallet without the node. Is what you're well, saying? That's why it would be on top of it. Correct. Now you can run a, you can have a wallet that uses somebody else's node. Yeah. But you're always going to be using a node. Yeah to back your wallet otherwise you wouldn't know what your balances are you wouldn't know anything okay so for instance like when you well when you hold your coins at a place like coinbase right they're running a node and you're relying on that node i, I or hope, is it i, I hope, hope so is running a node. <laughs> okay well yeah. maybe that's a yeah. bad example but if you're using a wallet like um i don't know like blue wallet or something like that you're relying on their node basically correct yeah okay and then so if you're you but if you're using the node wallet I'm sorry the wallet software that's running on top of your node then you're relying on your own node with that wallet. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um and um yeah. So uh where were we? I think that I mean I I think that where the bitcoin are I mean really all of the bitcoin are on every person 
its node. So whoever is running a Bitcoin node has all the Bitcoin on their node. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of who can unlock those Bitcoin, well, only the people who hold the private keys can unlock those Bitcoin. Right. So that's the purpose of the ledger, right? Is that everyone can see where the Bitcoin are in any given period of time, but they don't know who holds it and they don't have the private keys of them. That's right. Um, and the reason why you really, the Bitcoin node needs to track all of it and not just the transactions that are relevant to yourself mm-hmm. is because there's a big difference between owning one out of 21 million Bitcoin and one out of 5 trillion Bitcoin. Yeah. And the only way for you to know what that other number is of the total supply is by having access to all of the transactions and by verifying all of the data, all of the ledger data, um, to, to so that you know what percentage of the total supply you hold. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's important at this point to distinguish the difference between the Bitcoin system and the fiat system, because I think that this very clearly points it out, right? Like if we were to, you were to have access to all of the transactions that happen all the time in the fiat system, first of all, it would be a violation of privacy just based on how we transact on a, on a current day-to-day basis. And second of all, I don't think that that's even information that the government would be willing to share publicly. Yeah, most definitely not. Um <laughs> Uh, and especially related to their money supply. I mean, I know they come out with figures and facts every now and then, but I don't know how much I even trust that stuff, to be honest. Yeah. And even if you do trust it, the bottom line is that you cannot independently verify it Mm -hmm. like you can with Bitcoin. One could imagine, and this is really what like advocates of CBDCs are like saying like, oh, let's have all financial information be pseudonymous so that it can be public and there's no privacy issue. Um, And also everyone can run a a fiat node, but only, you know, the Fed will have the ability to add units to the ledger. um, And that way it's all verifiable. Uh, But in my mind, it's like, what's the point of that? Because, The moment that you have to trust them to not just add lots of units to the ledger, Mm -hmm. the the, the horse is already out of the barn. Yeah. You have to trust them on everything. Um, And and then you also have to um, trust them on the uh, clock, the timekeeping part of it, which is really about sequentially ordering transactions over time. The only decentralized way to do that is with Bitcoin mining. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're relying on the Fed, then they can just reorder transactions. They can include transactions or remove transactions at their whim. And, uh, you know, you're you're back to square one. of they're doing Fed mining. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And And it wouldn't even really be mining. I don't know what they'd be doing. Well, they'd be doing what they do today, which is operating a SQL database. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it would be public, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't know. Do they even operate? I like, I know we already made this joke, but I really do imagine them having a spreadsheet with like 7 million tabs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, save file. Okay. Oops, I forgot to save the, that has a new file. Oh, gosh. (laughs) There's inflation. Delete tabs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyways. (laughs) 
Okay, so to bring it back to Bitcoin, though, and so now you've got your private keys generated, right? And you're holding some Bitcoin on your private keys in some form of a wallet. From there, right, you have to decide whether or not you want to have like hot storage, cold storage, how you want to store it, if you want to just keep it on that wallet or keep some on that wallet and put some into cold storage. Yes. So um, again, because you've got complete freedom, your private key, well, really it's, 256 zeros and ones that are completely random. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that it gets represented to kind of a human readable format is a mnemonic seed. um, And that's 12 or 24 words. Um, Now, this is really interesting. We've talked about this. uh, (laughs) It's uh, that um, the dictionary of words from which a mnemonic seed is pulled is not just Webster's dictionary. It's not just some random list of English words, um, but it's actually a, a curated list so that uh, you can minimize the risk of misspelling. Um, and the first four letters are always unique. Yeah, this blew way. my mind because yeah. when you first told me that, and then I saw some seed words, and I was like, no, that's not true. There's other words that begin with these four letters. And you were like, no, but not in the list yeah. of the ones that are usable for seed phrase pa- for seed passwords. And I was like, oh, I felt very stupid and excited at the same no, time. No, I think I think it, <laughs> I, th- I think you should have felt very smart that yeah. you're so good at Scrabble. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Um, so uh, that's the mnemonic. Now, technically... That's not really the private key, <laughs> um, because uh, that's uh, and and our friend Michael Goldstein reminds me of this as well. Uh, that's uh, the 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 seed phrase. Actually, you derive private keys from it. I see. And so this is what people call a hierarchical deterministic wallet, where using one secret, the twelve or twenty four words, you can generate an infinite number of private keys. Mm-hmm. And then e- because each private, in order to have an address, you need to add a new private key. I see. And so um, that's why you would need lots of private keys is because you're going to use lots of addresses to receive Bitcoin with. I see. Um, but it's very convenient that you can have this mnemonic, these 12 or 24 words, and then deterministically you can actually regenerate all of those private keys and then kind of figure out, okay, if I need to reconstruct or restore my wallet, uh, then this mnemonic is going to allow me to do that from scratch. Yeah. So I have a, I actually have always been a little confused about this. So you get like, if you've got a hardware wallet, right, you've got the, the 12 or 24 words, and then you also have the hardware wallet itself. And presumably you put a pin on the hardware wallet. Okay. So, you lose your hardware wallet because, you know, you didn't store it properly, but you, um, and so it's gone. And then, but you know, it's gone. So you go and get your 12 or 24 words or whatever. How do you, like, what do you do then? Do you need to like do the command line stuff? Like, or I guess I'm curious, like what happens then with, once you have the mnemonic? Yeah. Um, so perhaps the easiest, um, would be to go to the hardware wall manufacturer's website and read their FAQ of <laughs> how to, um, because they they probably have a a method. Um, I mean, there's also 
there are open source Bitcoin wallets that allow you to import an existing mnemonic. And so you'd be able to pretty easily recover that way. Um, but what's really risky on this particular topic is if you get bad software and you input your private key, mm-hmm. your mnemonic into it, then they can just take all your Bitcoin. Yeah. And we've actually seen this happen over and over and over of somebody goes to a website and the website prompts them, enter your 12 words. And the person just types them in. Yeah. And because they think they downloaded like Trezor software or letter software, but they actually downloaded some spam copy of it. Or or they're told, hey, there's a free airdrop of tokens. Oh, enter your to in order to claim it and yeah seed. <laughs> and you know we're so early that yeah. people uh people go for that so what we're saying is don't enter your seed anywhere unless you're in the like you know that you downloaded the right software and you're in the process of recovering recovering yeah the bitcoin that you lost on a hardware wallet yeah and yeah triple check everything mm-hmm. and um scams abound yeah. <laughs> dangerous Dangerous territory there. Um, so I guess this sort of brings me to a topic that I wanted to discuss, which is like different methods of cold storage and how I guess since this is a Bitcoin for advisors, how advisors should be advising their clients on how to best store their Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to back up and point out that what we described where you provide one digital signature from one private key mm-hmm. in order to unlock the Bitcoin. That's called single sig, single mm. signature. Yeah. And that's tried and true um, method of of accessing Bitcoin. There is another method called... Well, before... Well, so single sig is literally that you have one mnemonic phrase that's either 12 or 24 words and one hardware wallet that presumably you've put a pin on. Right. And you can move all your Bitcoin onto that. And then, like, you would store the one hardware wallet and the seed phrase separately somewhere. Right. And or or together. Or together. Um, because really, the reason that uh, you want to have both formats is that one, um, it's very secure to spend Bitcoin from a hardware wallet. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat convenient. It would be very inconvenient to spend from a uh, seed backup, yeah. of, as we just discussed, mm-hmm. and as we discussed, very insecure as well, because you'd have to type it in. Um, and so, you know, lots of risk there. Um, so the best thing is is really that you take really, really good care of your hardware wallet. Well... In the grand scheme of things, right? Because, like, you can memorize your 12 or 24 words. No, that, that, I mean, that's that's... I would I would recommend not wasting one's time doing that because yeah. you're gonna forget. And I mean the the marginal improvement of security there, I I don't see it. But the I think that really t- in my mind the 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 advantage of the backup is that an electronic device can fail. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just takes a few zeros and ones to flip. And then you're, it's corrupted and you can't, um, you know, get your Bitcoin out. Yeah. Um, and so the backup, I think the ideal is to use metal plates. And there's different manufacturers of different metal plates. 
Um, but it gives you a format that is fireproof and waterproof. Mm-hmm. Um, but arguably should still be something that you check periodically to make sure that like none of the letters are starting to corrode or. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I would hope that the Amazon reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this it's still early days, right? So like, imagine is, yeah. you're like, I don't know, you're totally paranoid and you decide to store your, your like, your metal plate somewhere in your backyard and some sort of waterproof tank or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But like, you should probably check on it, right? Like, just in case it rains a lot. I don't know. It, it can't hurt. <laughs> it can't hurt. Um, yeah, it can't hurt, I guess. <laughs> Although it can, if if your neighbors, yeah, like, if your neighbors why does like he keep going back there. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't check on it every day, but like yeah. maybe like you know every couple of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Slowly caress it, my precious. <laughs> yeah. Precious. <laughs> um. So. Yeah, that's uh. Now, I I, I want to emphasize something else here is you know we're talking about hardware wallets. Um, one way that hardware wallets get compromised is through uh, supply chain attacks, where basically somebody buys a hardware wallet from one of the manufacturers, tampers with it, and then puts it for sale on Amazon or on eBay, mm-hmm. and then um, usually, I mean. I imagine what they do is that they they get the seed mm-hmm. and then they put it back. And yeah. so then when you send any Bitcoin to that seed, then they sweep it. Well, if you're going to do that, I mean, the first thing you have to do is wipe the, like, reset it to the factory settings at the very least um, before you use it, right? I mean, because that generates a new 12 or 24 Well, phase. But you're already... But they already have it from an old one, so they could re- theoretically recover it. Is that what you're saying? No, I guess what I what I'm saying is that um, you're already describing somebody who's advanced. Oh yeah, the, the victim in this scenario doesn't is, is utterly clueless. Yeah, you know they they just bought this off of eBay. Mm-hmm. I guess <laughs> like, like first thing is they were already doing something wrong. Yeah, don't buy off of eBay. But if you are going to buy off of eBay, no, then no, don't no, buy off no, of eBay. Stop right there. Don't buy, <laughs> don't off, buy of off of eBay. No, there's no 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 no. Okay. <laughs> I guess I've been like in the habit of wiping. I have these hardware walls that I've been wiping over and over again to practice. Yeah, and uh, so I'm I. I like I'm really good at the factory resets. Okay. <laughs> That's good, but okay. That doesn't that should not translate into advice for people. Yeah, yeah. Don't buy off eBay. Go to the manufacturer's actual website. Make sure it's really truly their website. Also, when the box arrives, make sure the box or the um or the plastic that it comes with in hasn't been tampered with. Um the box should actually be very difficult to open. Um that's kind of like I uh, you should actually need a knife to or scissors to open it. If you don't, then it's probably been tampered with. Yeah. Um, and uh, then the the metal plate you can buy off of Amazon or eBay. That's fine because that. Yeah, you just yeah. re <laughs> scramble. I mean, I guess if it's been used and somebody didn't. I, I, I don't know what to say about that. But yeah, yeah, I don't know what to say about that situation. <laughs> they're sending their... You would open it up and be like, thanks for sending me your... Your private key. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you can also engrave in marble. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I've been reading about marble in our son's rock book, and um, apparently there's, there's this place in Italy that has, like, this marble that's running out. 
Uh-oh. Um, and he was getting really excited about getting some. <laughs> was like, presumably, you can carve your seed phrase into something like that. Although apparently, it's very expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we found a new store of value: it's Italian marble. Yeah, Italian mar- marble. Good. Yeah. Um. So, um. So that's single sig, multi sig, uh, can really come in a lot of different flavors, but the basic idea is that you ask for multiple signatures from multiple private keys. Mm-hmm. And so it can be two of two, it can be one of two. So I just want to back up. I think like it yeah. needs to be explicitly pointed out that you actually need to use two, you need to use both hard, two hardware wallets or three hardware wallets, depending on how you set it up, right? It needs to have multiple signers where you're literally going with two devices or more and actually signing with each of them. Well, yes. Having said that, the private keys could be coming from any kind of format. Yeah, that's true. It, it could be a software wallet. It could be yeah. a mobile phone wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, but hardware wallet, um, yeah. But there needs to be multiple signatures at the time before you can actually move your Bitcoin anywhere. Right, exactly. So, yeah. So, with two of two, you need two signatures from two specific private keys. With two of three, it could be two signatures from any of three different private keys mm-hmm. um and that that gets set up when you are receiving the bitcoin yes because you're receiving it to this smart contract mm-hmm. um and then you can undo it by spending those bitcoin and actually you know having the right signatures um but if you don't have the right signatures from you know these devices or whatever uh then or SOL, you're not going to be able to spend the Bitcoin. Yeah, so I wanted to get into some of the pros and cons about multi-sig versus single-sig. Because, so multi-sig, right, when, let's say you set up a two of three or a three of five situation. Now you've got two, let's say, two hardware wallets and two mnemonic devices. Or if you've set up three, right, you've got three hardware wallets or maybe one software wallet and two hardware wallets and two mnemonic devices or however you set it up, right? That there's actually five wallets there. So maybe you even have more than that, depending on who the other signers are. And same thing with the two of three, right? Maybe you have have all three or maybe you're using a service like Unchained or Casa to help you. Um, but you have more stuff to keep track of. But the advantage, right, is that because there's more stuff to keep track of and presumably you maybe have somebody else helping you with a third key or a, or a fourth and a fifth key, that you will not be in a situation where you accidentally lose all of your Bitcoin because you lost them all in one single SIG accident, um, which maybe some people want to do, right? Your tragic boating accident. But presuming that you don't actually want to lose your Bitcoin, right? That you would you can get a third party involved to help you move the Bitcoin if and when you happen to lose a key. But there are disadvantages to this, right? It adds complexity. Um, it adds more things to keep track of. And it also involves a third party, which then knows how much Bitcoin you have. Yeah, that's right. Now, you can do multi-sig without a third party. Yeah. Um, there, I think the challenge is that uh, the open source software is still early, um, and you're adding additional kind of dependencies in your setup, more software, more uncertainty. Um, but look, there are people who do it today uh, just fine. Um, and... The other, um, I, I mean, I think that the the big advantage of having a third party is kind of the hand-holding aspect mm-hmm. of totally. it. Totally. 
yeah, you have somebody to help you actually set up your multi-sig situation. Maybe you've never even used a hardware wallet before and somebody from Unchained Capital can actually get on a call with you and show you how to use it so you feel a lot more confident sending your coins from a Coinbase, Kraken, or Gemini to that hardware wallet. I think that's a huge advantage. Um, especially like if you're new to the space, I mean, for veteran Bitcoiners who are used to moving money around or thinking about these things, it's not as big of a deal. But for somebody who went on Coinbase, bought some, held it there, and then read, um, you know, that their customer deposits can basically be used to if they go out of business for the purposes of their creditors, right? And now you're freaking out and you want to move your coins offline, but you don't know how to do it. I think this is a fantastic solution. Yes. Um, and the the other uh, you know advantage of multisig is being able to put the different private keys in different places. Yeah, I actually you have a really good example on this, like the super complicated. But I would start maybe start with the simple and then work your way up to the super complicated in many jurisdictions. One that <laughs> oh you... yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I think the 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 super simple is uh, you know have one key at your home, have another one at your vacation home, or at your in laws, or at the bank. The bank people argue over because nobody likes banks. Mm-hmm. And Government they, could theoretically seize it, but if you're using yeah. a third party, they can theoretically seize it from the third party too. Yeah, um, but <laughs> you, you can you can put a key, you know, uh, in a national park or uh, <laughs> you know geolocated uh, with some coordinates. Um, Just go there and check on your steel plate every now and then. <laughs> yeah, although you wouldn't even necessarily have to put a steel plate. I mean, I think that in that situation, you wouldn't. Yeah, I. The whole I point know. is that I'll, you don't lose yeah, the key. I'll leave it to to people's imagination <laughs> as to. Um, but what I think uh, is really another interesting aspect of multisig that doesn't get a lot of airtime is asset protection. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, high net worth individuals pay an army of accountants and lawyers to set up offshore entities so that they can. Um, shield their assets from civil and criminal uh, uh, seizure. Um, And that's what like the Panama Papers is about. And there's all sorts of, you know, semi scandals in the sense that, hey, this is actually something that you can legally do. (laughs) Uh, You just have to have enough money to pay uh, to, to do it correctly so that if somebody sues you, they can't just take all your wealth away. Um, And, what Bitcoin does and multisig does is democratize this. So now instead of having to pay millions of dollars to lawyers and accountants, um, you can actually just pay hundreds of dollars to buy hardware wallets. Uh, and you can put these hardware wallets in different legal jurisdictions so that if anybody, if a judge wants to seize your Bitcoin, they would have to engage in an international procedure in order to seize enough hardware wallets from abroad uh, to form a quorum and to steal, or not to steal the Bitcoin, to lawfully <laughs> seize the Bitcoin. Um, you can also take very nice travel trips, I guess, all around the world to all these jurisdictions instead of paying that money to accountants and lawyers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you can be on the beach enjoying a Mai Tai. Um, now, uh, this... It used to be the case that multi-sig was limited, I think, to like a dozen or two dozen um, private keys. Mm -hmm. Um, But now with the latest upgrade to Bitcoin last year called uh, Taproot, included in that is uh, 
Schnorr and the ability to do um, multi-sig with an arbitrary number of uh, private keys. Mm -hmm. And so in theory, you could do a multi-sig and leave a private key in every single jurisdiction in the world. And, you know, if it was like 165 of 165, now the entire, you know, world's <laughs> governments would have to all agree to uh, seize your Bitcoin, which, um, yeah, I think any judge involved in that case would be uh, really uh, perhaps not even bother because uh, that would just take up the the rest of their career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For one person, meanwhile, there's like millions of people doing this now. Yeah, and yeah. and then <laughs> what what you get into is that the cost of seizing the Bitcoin is like orders of magnitude greater than the value of the Bitcoin being seized. Yeah, and well, that's I, the ideal scenario. I think that could be said though, even for just a regular plebe with doing a two of three multi sig, right? I mean, the fact that even if you don't involve a third party. Um, the fact that you would put three different hardware wallets in three different locations would just mean that it would cost that much more for somebody to go and seize your Bitcoin or, you know, be able, like if they found it in one location, they'd have to figure out where the other location was before they were actually able to move the Bitcoin. So at the very least, it either costs them more to do it or it slows them down to enough of a point where you would be able to then step in and maybe move it before they did. Right. Because it it, it addresses and from like a criminal perspective, um, somebody breaking into your house. Now, it doesn't matter if they ransack the place and take everything. Um, they still wouldn't have enough key material to move the Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the scenario where they're holding you hostage, well, now the logistical complexity of it becomes much greater because now they have to transport you mm-hmm. <laughs> to different locations. Um, and uh, the you know criminals are always calculating okay, what's the risk here, you know, and what's, what's, uh, what's the reward? Um, and, you, you know, you can very easily create a situation where only an, a very irrational criminal would engage in this activity. But then in that case, um, I, I, I don't know that, that they would, um, I, I don't know how successful they would be because uh, <laughs> you're already dealing with somebody who's not thinking straight. And, you know, in, in terms of moving Bitcoin, you have to be thinking straight. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah I think that's a good point. I mean, I think there are other um, ways that you can use multi-sig also versus single-sig, um, not just from the protection standpoint, but also from an estate planning perspective. I kind of like the idea of multi-sig because so, for instance, let's say, you know, you're happily married and you've got adult children. Like you want your adult children to inherit your Bitcoin, but you don't want them to have it now. You want them to have it later. So you could give them one of your hardware wallets if you had a multi-sig solution set up and then they would or like, you know, then you can leave them instructions of where to find the other one should something happen to you. Um, so like there are ways where you can set it up where, you know, things can pass to the next generation without actually involving, you know, the typical lawyers and everything else probate. um probate and everything yeah where these assets can actually pass and not even be acknowledged that they are around and then it's up to the person at that point if they your heir to say okay i have this bitcoin i want to get a step up in basis or whatever else they want to do and that's actually beyond your control once you're you know dust in the earth but um at least at the very least right during your lifetime if you don't want somebody to spend your money if you set up a multi-six solution then they won't um and if you are doing let's say two of three and you give one to you know one of your kids and then now you still have the other two that you can go and spend on, right? 
and they only have the one. So that's one nice thing. I think the other thing is also if you've got one spouse where they're not so good with Bitcoin, they're just along for the ride. Usually the wife and the husband's so crazy about Bitcoin and they can't stop talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe them being sexist here, but then, you know, the wife's like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But then some, you know, suddenly the husband drops dead and the wife's like, oh no, I have to deal with this Bitcoin thing. Um, if you've used a, a company like Unchained Capital or, you know, one of these where the like wife actually has somebody to reach out to, um, and figure out what to do with these hardware wallets as opposed to, you know, leaving somebody with a single SIG who doesn't know what they're doing. So there are other reasons why you might want to do multi-SIG, even if you're like hardcore Bitcoiner and single SIG is what you, what you've always intended and everything else. Yep. Did we miss out on any, uh, topics with multi-SIG? Um, I don't think so. I think we kind of covered it. There is also like, you know, you mentioned Unchained specifically, um, the use case where uh, you're borrowing against your Bitcoin Mm -hmm. and um, they have it set up where Unchained has a key, a third party entity has a key and then you have a key. And that way, you know that even though you've pledged this collateral, Unchained is not then turning around and lending it out to somebody else Yep, and creating kind of a fractional reserve type system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, starkly different than, let's say, like a BlockFi or something like that, where you're not really sure what they're doing behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, like, as much as I've knocked on loans, sometimes you just need you have a short term cash flow mismatch, right? And that's the easiest way to do it is to just say, okay, I've got this this Bitcoin, I can lend against it until I get, you know, my payday down the road and whatever else you're using that loan for. I would advise against using it for consumption, though. Um, I've heard Bitcoiners say that, oh, why spend, you know, why spend my fiat now and when I can invest 100% of my fiat and then lend against my Bitcoin and fund my life. Yeah, I'm sorry. I always do that. Borrow against my Bitcoin and fund my lifestyle. And I just... I mean, I guess if you're like living on the edge, go for it. But I would generally advise against that. I think the short term cash flow mismatches are the best time to borrow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, there's a new hardware wallet that just came out from Cold Card. Uh, oh, yeah. Before. Yeah. Um, now, I also uh, haven't pointed out that one of the interesting things about hardware wallets is that not only are you physically separating the private key from your day-to-day computer, but if somebody gets their hands on your hardware wallet, and let's say this is a single SIG situation, mm-hmm. they steal your hardware wallet. That's all they take. Um, and they don't have the pin. You could imagine that, okay, well, they could crack open the case, use fancy electronic equipment, and extract the private key, the seed. Mm -hmm. But as far as we know, and there are security researchers who are constantly trying exactly this, Mm -hmm. um, the latest generation of cold card, ledger, treasure, um, are not vulnerable to physical attack like this in the sense that even with fancy laser equipment, um, the attacker cannot glitch the hardware to extract the private key or the seed uh, from the hardware, which is really, it's unprecedented in human history because 
if you go buy a vault or a safe, they're rated based on how long they can withstand physical attack. And there's no vault where it's like infinite. Yeah. Like with a hardware wallet, you know, as far as we know, the latest generation. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, even Fort Knox, if you watch Goldfinger, you know that there's there's a way into Fort Knox. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's very, you know, it's very expensive to, to break in. But um, all this to say that uh, that's that's one of the really positive attributes of a hardware wallet. Yeah, I would also say set good pins. You know, like not same too good thing. though. Yeah, you not too good that out. you can lock yourself out, but set good enough ones that it's not easy. And also set good passwords on all these other things. If you are relying on an exchange, don't mm-hmm. use your dog's name. You know, like be smart about it. Absolutely. Um, now we can end on this one, which is that. If you are crossing a border Mm -hmm. and you're fleeing your country because it's being invaded or whatever, um, you might have to ditch the hardware wallet because you're going to get strip searched. Yep. And what you'll have to do is memorize the mnemonic phrase, those 12 or 24 words, hopefully 12. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know Rodolfo says 24 is more secure, but I think in this scenario... You'd, you'd buy a 12. I feel like I've never been in a situation where I've had 12 either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you got to memorize those words and then uh, get on the other side of the border and quickly write them down. Uh, because, you know, the human mind is very frail. You'll forget them. But it's really amazing that you can move, you know, billions of dollars Infinite worth of Bitcoin. Money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and get yourself to safety uh, with all that value and no one would be the wiser. Um, and, and that's really, um, I think, something that is uh, uh, astounding about Bitcoin. Yeah, I totally agree. I would also say if you're going to do that, that make sure you memorize them in order because it actually doesn't help you to know all the words if you don't know which number they are. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm never in that situation. That'd be so stressful. I know. I could just see you like the cops are coming. You're like starting to memorize the words. You only get up to 12. You're like, darn it. I have 24. Ah, take the, take the paper. (laughs) You should always have a friend who has photographic memory and who is very honest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I think that's a good place to end on. If you like the show, leave us a review. Um, if you want specific content, then DM us. I'm Morgan with an E Rochard. Pierre is at Pierre underscore Rochard. And uh, we hope to do this monthly. We're doing our best. Be patient with us. And we appreciate your listenership. Thank you. Thank you.